neuroscience, quantum physics, biology, plant medicine, non-dual tantric meditative practices. We will be exploring these concepts with experts to provide insights. Get ready to melt reality with us. We are thrilled to have Cameron Dubes with us on Exploring Reality Maybe. Cameron has more than 40 years of campaign management and major gift experience, much of it as a consultant to leading nonprofit organizations. He's currently serving as the senior philanthropic advisor for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, which we'll talk about later. Cameron spent nearly a decade as managing consultant and founder of the New York firm Like Minds, which he originally founded in 1989. He also has served as executive director of development with the University of Chicago and as a vice president for CCS fundraising. Cameron has created a consultancy called A1.Echo with the intention of supporting regenerative projects for the environment with a particular interest in preserving the Amazon rainforest and its miraculous medicine of the forest. Cameron has a Bachelor of Science in Agriculture Business and Journalism from Iowa State University. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks, Jody. Thanks, David. Pleasure to have you. Of course, it's wonderful to have you here. And so as just a starting point in our conversation, I just would love for you to share some of your early memories that created sort of a moment of awe or transcendence or an experience where you really connected to the land that your family had and just something that sort of set the stage for you on your life. Sure. Yeah, I grew up on a farm in in Northwest Iowa my family had the international grand champion shorthorn bull in the 1930s. So it was a beef farm predominantly, 360 acres. And it was not necessary. And the farm was called Shadow Lawn. And unfortunately, there was a little bit of shadow there. <laughs> a very un- unhappy father. And we uh, we were struggling financially because the universities encouraged farmers to put their cattle in feedlot and feed them corn. And so when you do that to a ruminant, they get sick. And so we had a lot of illness, a lot of losses. And so it was a challenging time. But even in all of that, there are a couple of instances where I would feel the weather change. And I would love to go to the North Grove. We had a North Grove and a South Grove to protect the homes. And I would go there during storms and feel the barometric pressure change. I would notice that the birds would stop chirping and things like that. And it was just there was something very awesome about that. And I did survive two Iowa tornadoes and one massive snowstorm. And um, one day, and my dad didn't want to lose the last row of hay, which is the outside row of a field. And so it takes longest. And we could see these ominous cloud formations, these dark green and black and blue clouds coming. And we knew a big storm was coming. And so we had to get that last row of hay. So we pulled into the farmstead just as the storm hit, we unhooked the wagon of bales and drove into the machine shed as the storm hit, and it was a tornado. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen what was it? What was tornado? Or there was a wor- there was a movie Twister. that was all well, Twister. Twister, right? And I don't know if you remember. There's a scene where they go into the pump shed with all the sickles and knives and so forth. Basically, we were in this shed full of sharp objects. Oh and my we, God. we stood in the doorway as the tornado hit. You could see tree limbs swimming through. And we were next to the show barn, which is the horse barn of the farm. And you could see it breathe. And you could see through the barn, through the sides of the building as it, it was breathing. And it lasted maybe 25 minutes or so, if that. And all I can remember is just this awe of the power of nature. I wasn't afraid. It was so surreal. And, but it was powerful. We lost, we had a number of buildings on the farm that we lost all the cupolas, all the little nice little Victorian huts on top of the buildings, 18 trees and some beautiful trees. But I still look back in that day as just this awesome respect and power of nature. And so that was. I guess my first kind of real awe-inspiring experience, and it wasn't frightful. It was just, wow, (laughs) this is power. (laughs) Yeah, 
that's incredible. That's just the kind of experience that we're trying to collect on this on this show. Cameron, you, you made your identity as a gay man public quite some time ago. Can you share with us your experience of being a young gay man growing up in the environment that you did, including including the secrets that you kept? Sure. I think I remember at an early age being attracted to older boys and things like that. So I always, and I, I remember first grade, I, I spent a night with a friend and wanted to sleep in his bed. I said, can I sleep with you? And he said, oh, no, that's not right. And I think that was like maybe it was probably seven years old. So I knew at that point that something was wrong, <laughs> different, <laughs> and that I had to be careful. I do recall that. And then through through growing up, I had attraction, and but I knew that I needed to keep it quiet. And and then Iowa State, when I went to Iowa State, then I was a bit more free. And the, there wasn't, we didn't have technology then. So the only way you met someone was hanging around a restroom somewhere on campus, which is not the best way to meet people, but... It was a very underground and not a very healthy way. And and I came out initially when I was about 23 years old, when I realized I was gay, to about a half dozen dear friends and fraternity brothers at Iowa State. And uh, and they were all very respectful, except one who said, oh, no, that's not right. It's bad. And so then I realized, okay, I need to be a little bit more cautious about coming out. And but. Those friends were all friendly and supportive, but they were all straight. But it was lonely because even though they knew I was gay, but they didn't really know how to deal with it. This was in the 80s, early 80s. And so it was lonely. So you really do have to make your own community. And I moved to New York City right out of Iowa State, lasted four months, and everything that possibly scare me out of New York City did. I ran back to Iowa and then about a few weeks later, and I'm very much a kind of an ADD mind. I, I don't listen to lyrics, but one day I'm driving to this gay bar in Waterloo, Iowa, where they make the big John Deere tractors and combines. It was a small little microcosm bar, and I was listening to Diana Ross, I'm coming out. And I swear it was a very corny thing, but oh my God, I'm gay. <laughs> and why did I just move back to Iowa in the middle of nowhere as a gay man? And... Uh, I ended up then moving to Washington, D.C. nine months later to, as the director of PR for the Future Farmers of America, where I was able to be really an out gay, gay man. But it, and it's a very lonely existence. I also have strabismus, which means I only use one eye at a time. I had a wandering eye like Marty Feldman on Young Frankenstein. The eye goes off to the upper left. And I had cosmetic surgery, so it corrected my left eye to, to follow my so I can't catch or throw a ball. So I was the last guy in every team. So I was a gay kid in a small town in Iowa where athletics is everything. And I was the last guy in every team. So I kind of, I think that helped to drive me to cooperative things because I really can't compete. So I want to cooperate. <laughs> and right. sometimes that stuff is a gay man. It's like you have to cloak yourself to be able to function in the world. Yeah, very interesting and very powerful experiences. I love the description on your LinkedIn profile where you say you, quote, came out of the closet 30 years ago and you are now coming out of the medicine cabinet. So let's try to link up some of these experiences that you describe in your, in your social and your sexual life. When did you first learn about psychedelics? And what was your early experience with them? And how does this idea of coming out of the medicine cabinet apply to your current world? Yeah, I think I, I get credit for that. Even Rick Doblin, the exec director, now founder and president of MAPS, he loves that that uh, saying. He had never heard it before. But But I started in, I guess it would have been in the late 80s in Washington, D.C., and it was an introduction, and I actually kicked guys out of my fraternity at Iowa State for smoking pot. And then when I came out at 23, I apologized to them. I didn't tell them why I was apologizing for judging them, but I realized I shouldn't judge. And that's one of the things I learned really growing up. My father really taught us the golden rule, and he used to say, to keep peace, don't discuss politics or religion at the table. And I said, Dad, for me, because the game, everything is politics and religion. It's hard not to. <laughs> You had to keep peace to bring in your crops because you wouldn't want to upset your neighbor. 
be needed to work with everybody. And so anyway, back to the late 80s, then I'm in Washington, D.C., and friends are dying. Of, and it's a it's it's a war. And it's like we're it was the Reagan years and Reagan never talked about HIV or AIDS. And so it was a very and I was in D.C. and as an FFA director of PR, we would go to the White House with Ronald Reagan and the White House. And it was always but very it felt like you're in this very different worlds. And so I overheard someone talking about MDMA. And so that was really my first experience. I hadn't smoked pot yet. <laughs> and I did MDMA. And I did it with some friends on a dance floor in New York City. We traveled up from Washington, D.C. And as soon as the MDMA hit, I became a tribal visitor dancing for my little D.C. tribe on the dance floor to all the other tribes on the dance floor. And I always saw back then, it's like, why are... It, I wish there was a group process to connect everybody on the dance floor because it was such an empathy thing. And so I was a very shy Iowa farm boy and it brought me out of, of my shell. I hated to dance, but I was a dancer. I was a tribal visitor. I even introduced a dear friend of mine that I worked with at the time to him and he was very uh, shy. You couldn't literally get a word out of him. He was so shy. It was almost, it was hard for him to function. And I ended up introducing him to M on the dance floor one time, and then you couldn't shut him up for a year. <laughs> he had to say everything that he had never been able to say before. And then he calmed down, and he's had an incredibly successful life ever since. So I saw the healing potential of M and the empathy to it. And I realized in later years that we were processing grief and PTSD in real time as our friends are dying of AIDS. So that was the first experience. And then Fast forward then, and then to 1992. Actually, in 1989, I was working with a wonderful hospital in, in Washington, D.C., and I held nothing against them. I rebranded them. It was Children's National Medical Center, and I rebranded them with a teddy bear stethoscope. So I was known as Dr. Bear at the hospital, and I developed a character and so forth. And my boss during that period died of AIDS. And something moved me and spirit moved me. And I wrote a letter in tribute to him right before Christmas. And I believe it was 89. And uh, I got back from Christmas break and they asked me to resign because I talked to my, about my boss being gay, even though he had introduced his partner. So I was asked to resign. I got a six month severance package, went to Europe for a month, came back. I got a six figure contract with Greenpeace on Chernobyl, which then started my environmental consciousness. And then that led me to Brazil in 92 for the Earth Summit. And I overheard someone talking about ayahuasca and Santa Diamond. I said, what is that? I want to try it. And so I asked around, asked around, finally found someone. He said, oh, yeah, we did it last night. Crap. You know, I'm leaving in two days. <laughs> and I'm, I was a workaholic at the time. And I went out to a gay club in Rio that night, met someone, fell in love, extended my trip for two months. And afterwards found out that he had a partner. <laughs> so I was there and it was the most mad. And we remain friends to this day. It was the most magical, mystical two months of my life. And I had missed that ayahuasca experience, but was drawn to this metaphysical bookstore in Ipanema and walked in and as a gay man, I noticed this cute guy behind the counter. I'm looking at an English section of books in the bookstore and another gentleman walks up to me in the aisle and said, my friend behind the counter doesn't speak English, but he'd like to invite you to a Santa Daimi ritual. So he gave me the address and I and a matchbook basically. And I take this taxi up to the Chujuca forest of Rio in the dark. I don't know what this is that I'm going to experience. I, I didn't realize it was a, a church. I thought it was a bunch of indigenous around a fire. It was a one of their celebration works. So it was a 12 hour work from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. all in their white uniforms. And it was profound. It was a profound experience. It reminded me of ecstasy, but I could see the male and female sides of this work, the vortex they were created. I saw so much. I saw healing. I was a kind of an active sexual addict when I was younger. And so I couldn't help but stare at these gorgeous Portuguese men and <laughs> drool. <laughs> and they would, in their white suits, and they'd look at me and they would acknowledge, but they wouldn't judge. And so it was like this incredible journey. I saw so many things that night. The trees breathe, the vines crawl through the jungle. And, and I even, at one point, I'm out in the jungle and I saw this young, like 10 year old boy in a white suit. And I go, oh my God, I'm attract this child. What the hell's wrong with me? And the voice goes, if it's a soul or spirit, you're recognizing that's something you're recognizing about this child. 
then I find myself below the church in front of the big bonfire it was a St. John work. It was one work. You throw things into the fire and I'm going, I'm in Jim Jones's camp. I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. They're serving little shot glasses. And the voice goes, what is death? And <laughs> is death so bad? The music shifts. I'm drawn back up the path to the church, reciting the 23rd Psalm, which I loved as a child, which I couldn't recite to you right now, <laughs> but I was bringing it back from memory. And I get back in line and it's 6 a.m. And I had a white shirt and some khaki pants. I have bark on my shirt. I must have been hugging trees. And the young man that had been behind the desk at the bookstore came up to me in broken English. He asked, how are you? And I said, thank you. You're an angel. And he said, oh, no, thank God. And that 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 changed my life, that experience. I tell people that ayahuasca should have a warning label on it. So do not consume unless you're ready to transform your life. And that experience has informed a good deal of my life. And back to the coming out of the medicine cabinet. So that was 92. So for 30 some years, I've had I've been doing the suit and tie fundraising, major hospitals, environmental organizations, being very conservative and then on weekends exploring my consciousness. Sorry, that's a long answer to it, but it's that's the that's where the where I'm coming out of the medicine cabinet. And Cameron, can you share for our audience a little bit about the Diamate Church and what you've learned about them, what your experience was working with them, and just so they understand what that is? Sure. Santa Daime is a syncretic religion that's based out of the Amazon. There are lots of, it's ayahuasca is a vine and a leaf that are combined. So it's a natural tea made by shamans for thousands of years. It has DMT, which they call the spirit molecule, which all of us carry in our bodies, plants and animals. They say when you have a near-death experience, you get a dump of your DMT that, that then connects you to source. And that, so it's a syncretic religion. I call it shamanic Christianity because it really is about the negative and positive. You know, the negative of bringing things like the Kedusha cross, the two snakes, it's like the, it's kind of finding out yourself and finding out those aspects of yourself that you need to clear. And it's, it's based on a lot of Christian saints and so forth, but more about not following the Bible, but everything is through channeled hymns, which is basically about the golden rule, love your brother and sister, but don't talk about about other people. And so it's really about keeping that kind of golden rule is, is kind of what I see. I My experience in 92 and then 2008, I converted to be as HIV positive, And then I knew I needed to get back to Brazil. And I called up Alex Gray, and who's a friend. I was on his founding board when they started at Cosm. I said, I'm going, I need to get back to Brazil. He said, oh no, it's a New York City contact, Maxie Cohen, <laughs> who you mentioned before. And so I started in 2008 and then was pretty religious with it for about 14 years and cleared a lot of phobias that I had and a lot of fears, traveled into the Amazon, deep into the Amazon twice, healed a phobia of snakes that I had. Just, I've seen a lot of magical, mystical things in my life. And so it's been a, it's been a great teacher. I'm not quite as active as I was. And it's more about integrating all the experiences. And now I'm really, it's now devoting to helping the Amazon and, and the medicines of the forest, because it's not just ayahuasca that the Amazon produces. There are many plant medicines that, and many that have not even been discovered yet. But I, because I had seen healing in the 1992, when I went to the Amazon in 2008, I, I, I met one of the Madrinas, who's a, a healer and a shaman in the Amazon, and she gave me a medicine for HIV. And so fortunately, my doctor turned out to be an infectious disease and tropical disease physician. And so he, uh, I told him my viral load was really high. It was like 900,000 counts, which is really bad. My T cells were getting to a danger level, but I felt called to do natural healing. And so I went to the Amazon, met this wonderful woman, and uh, she gave me these three bottles. So I brought them back and I... Uh, shared with my doctor at my viral load. By that point, it inched up to now a million counts. He said, we need to get you on medicine. And I said, well, I've got these three bottles. Do you mind? I'd like to try. And he said, okay, but let's get back in a month and get you on meds. So I took the three bottles. My viral load dropped from 1 million counts down to 100,000 counts. Wow. 
Yeah, he was shocked. And so I said, well, when we found it, he said, do I need to go on meds? No, keep it up. <laughs> and so six months later, I was invited back to the Amazon because of, I was actually advising him on fundraising as well. And I brought three more bottles. My viral loaded inch back up to 300,000. I took those three more bottles and it dropped it back down to 100,000. Now, not to zero. So basically, there's a natural treatment for HIV from the Amazon. It's still in the and uh, there was a lot of other miraculous things about that particular medicine. It's called child in the bottle. So it, it's about regenerating oneself. It, and, is that, I, Cameron, just to be clear, is that ayahuasca? No, this no, is a totally different medicine. Totally different medicine. Have you talked totally. to MAPS about, we're going to get to MAPS, but have you talked <laughs> to MAPS about this? I haven't talked to him yet, but I know it's not a psychedelic necessarily. MAPS's focus is on psychedelic medicines right now, but this is a, this is another project. Do you happen to know? Do you happen to know what the compound is in there, or does anybody? The shaman that gave it to me actually healed her of one of the flesh-eating diseases. That's very—it's the only treatment. It's like a very heavy metal toxic drug, and she had shared. The doctor wanted to put her on the drug, and she said, "Well, I've got this medicine. A hundred. There was a hundred four-year-old shaman had given her the recipe, so." She tried it and it healed her. And so, of course, the doctor wanted the recipe to to rip it off from the Amazon. But no, it's still a product to be done. Unfortunately, I need to do some writing and communicate and help find some funds to, to do this research on that. Wow. As a scientist who does a lot of regulatory consulting, that's just fascinating and sounds incredibly important. Yeah, it is. And... Uh, a friend of mine worked with one of the major bottling companies in Brazil. And I told him one time, I said, oh, gosh, you, you license this as a tonic <laughs> and then we can buy the bottling company. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. No, it's, and it's just one of many medicines of the forest. And here we are. And the irony in my life, I have karmic cattle karma. My first job in New York City was actually selling advertising for National Hog Farmer and Beef Magazines. I ended up moving back to Iowa for, with Ralston Prinas selling livestock chows, so beef chows, hog chows, lab chows, then to FA, future farmers. And then I got out of agriculture because it's a very conservative industry. And then about a decade ago, I worked for the James Beard Foundation, the top chefs. They brought me back to agriculture about food. And now I live in Bovina Center, New York, and I'm working with a, a lifestyle medicine physician who is basically our high protein diets are cancer causing and all sorts of other ill effects. So we need to be eating less beef and what's destroying the Amazon, but our consumption of bad beef and soy and so forth, it's destroying the Amazon. So we have to change our diet. So this ironic, it's not my journey. It's like, this wasn't my idea of a journey, but here I am trying to work on cleaning up my cattle karma and my family. Very interesting. Cameron, you've personally hosted private spaces, as I understand it, for people who have expertise administering psychedelic medicine to their clients. Can you expound on this a little bit, share about this work and how and why you offer this type of support? Well, I did. I don't, you know, now because I'm a consultant with MAPS, so I don't want to put them into kind of any kind of a, of a legal predicament. But my my work has been spiritually guided and and so i i feel that that i feel called to to help people with some of these different medicines and so there there is an underground network of people that work with mdma particularly but also psilocybin and lsd sometimes and it's really profound and i've never seen any negative bad things happen actually and of course working with the daimi for 14 years there's a lot of healing through that and so helped to host some of the ayahuasca works, hosted Mesotech healers in the past, uh, working with psilocybin out of Mexico. There's so many different indigenous groups that I, my, my sense in the future and what I'd like to do with some friends up here is to host indigenous. Because I think when people experience this medicine, it's really good to, to do it from source with the ayahuasca or some of those things, psilocybin, is more of a natural, it's a, it's in our backyards oftentimes. And I think our ancestors all used uh, psilocybin in their medicines and, and so forth. The is 
more of a chem. It's still plant-based safroil, actually is part of it, so there is a plant derivative to it, but it is more of a chemical base. It does kind of, it does tire the body, so it's not something you should do very often, but it, it quiets the amygdala so that if the trauma that people have, and I recognized in the recent years working with maps that I was traumatized, and it was really because of my father's anger on the farm and things like that. There was a lot of trauma, and the, it was a shadow lawn. And it, and I, and my first ayahuasca, one of my early ayahuasca experiences in Brazil was at Waziwaska, which is a center for plant integrator medicine with Luis Eduardo Luna, who is one of the first authors talking about ayahuasca. And he worked with Pablo Amaringa, and published a book of his amazing ayahuasca art that actually Alex and Alice and Grave Cosm produced or published for him. But I, that, at that, it was a two-week retreat and big glasses of ayahuasca. And I, 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 one of the works, I actually walked my farm. I smelled the smells, and there was a lot of crap on a beef farm. And uh, I, I had a big purge. And at the purge, I realized my father was just a product of his ancestry. And I forgave my father, and he was still alive at the time. I had been trying to get him to understand all the stuff, and he just couldn't comprehend it. It wasn't in his consciousness necessarily. But I was able, through that ayahuasca experience, to have a deep healing and let that go and forgive him. And we had incredible another 20 years together as father and son. That is just so beautiful. I think that's one of the things that comes out of this work is transformative experiences very personally and very deeply. And I know, Cameron, that you've had a, an amazing journey, also as a large gift of development expert. Can you share what moves you about this work and why the movement of capital towards impact is so important to you, especially in the light of your experience with nature and your leadership in raising capital and moving capital? Sure, sure. For the most of the first decade was in marketing, communications, branding, rebranding, so forth, and rebranded a couple of organizations, Children's Hospitals, as I mentioned, in Washington, but also Youth for Understanding International Exchange, exchange program with 26 countries. So I learned a lot about cultural differences through that. And then the last 30 years has been really in fundraising and in philanthropy. Although now with MAPS, I'm getting to understand impact investing because we have a pharmaceutical company, MAPS Public Benefit Corporation, that we're creating, and we have to raise capital because we really want to keep it public benefit. But once you start selling private equity or private capital, it you can lose uh, the public benefit pretty quickly when it comes down to profits. But I would say that I've been very blessed and I, early on, as I mentioned, I sold advertising for the magazine and worked with Ralph Supreme, but I realized early on that I was cause-oriented. I had to be aligned heart-wise. And I've worked with some, many of the top medical schools, universities, environmental organizations, and it's wonderful to be able to be representing these great organizations with great causes. And so it's like a little bit of a Robin Hood. And, and, but at the same time, people... People need to give. People need to share their resources. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to do that. And now with MAPS, it's a very significant time. We watch our evening news and we see all these pharma advertisements and so forth. And, you know, what I see when I see those, I see most of those can be changed. Those diseases can be healed by a better diet or most cases. No one promotes better diet they just want to sell you the drug and with the mdma we want to keep it as inexpensive and as available to the masses as possible rick doblin is i've worked with a lot of leaders and some of the top top wonderful leaders over the years but i would say rick doblin is probably the one that i have the most respect for he's had a 37 year vision that he's bringing to 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 fruition and he 
he wants to have a net zero trauma by 2070, which is a wonderful vision ahead. And we and feels that all these psychedelic medicines are here to help raise the consciousness and heal the humanity. And one of the reasons I'm working with Remaps versus really active right now on the Amazon is that one time I went to a meeting years ago, I said, I'm here to help save the planet. They said, well, the planet's going to be fine. So people got to worry about. <laughs> and it really is about, it's like we have to shift the consciousness. And so for me, Having done ayahuasca connected me deeply with the Amazon rainforest, and I've always been a tree hugger. I raised trees as a as a an FFA member, student, and and 4-H student in, in high school. So I, trees are very important. That's why I live on the Catskill Mountains. But it's the ayahuasca connected me deeply with the Amazon and the medicines of the forest with the indigenous, because unfortunately most of our indigenous in the United States were co-opted by religion and the United States, where Brazil, fortunately, a lot of the tribes weren't quite as impacted or affected. They did have Christian ministries, but after 92, a lot of the tribes actually asked, thanked the ministries for their teaching of Christ and so forth, but asked them to teach somebody else. And they brought their shamans back in from the forest and are now reclaiming their shamanic traditions, where our Native American communities were, I think, a lot more devastated. And so there's a lot of wonderful north-south. There's the condor and eagle prophecy, which is really important. So the south and the north coming together. So a lot of the indigenous, there's a lot of indigenous exchanges. So it's, so doing this work and raising, now raising impact investing capital to ensure a drug company that is there for the public benefit is a very rewarding and an honor to be serving. That's great, Rick. That, that's great, Cameron. So we started now segueing into MAPS, which Jody and I really wanted to get into with you. And we think it's a really important organization in terms of the work they're doing. So as I understand it, MAPS is doing research on a number of mind-altering psychedelic compounds, including MDMA, cannabis, ibogaine, ayahuasca, and LSD. Those are the ones that I understand are being looked at. Which of these substances do you find most exciting from the perspective of making a difference, broadly speaking, for people suffering from psychiatric illness? Which do you think is the lowest hanging fruit from your perspective? Definitely the MDMA. And that's been the heavy emphasis on it, uh, MAPS. And it's seen as the spearhead because it's a gentler, it, because it's not really psychoactive. It's more about the heart. Let's see, and our heart has neurons, our stomach has neurons. So it's really tuning into what I, my version of it is connecting to your soul, your spirit, that it calms things down. So you're really listening to yourself, your heart, you're connecting with your inner being versus like a lot of the shamans talk about with ayahuasca. It's uh, we live in a world of illusion, all these things that are You'll be happier if you have a bigger car. You'll be happier if, you know, you have white teeth. It's all that kind of stuff. And so it really helps, I think, connect people. So MDMA is really the spirit to help bring all the others along. I think psilocybin is great to lifting the spirits. LSD, I, I didn't experience LSD because I really bought into the uh, the government um, kind of hysteria or judgment of, of these medicines. and. I was afraid of LSD, but I had a very profound experience a few years ago that I had a past life experience. And and so that led me to, I asked Alex Gray, I said, do you know anybody does therapy with LSD? And he recommended somebody in New York who recommended the MDMA first. And we actually haven't done the LSD since because the MDMA had such a great impact and helped me. But I think LSD, I think, is an opportunity for people to connect with the spirit realms. So I'm excited about LSD. Psilocybin, there's a lot of work going on with that. Persona is one of the major, kind of another nonprofit that's doing research now on, on psilocybin. So there's a lot of things going on about that and I think has great potential. Ibogaine, I believe, is very exciting for the treatment of opioid addiction, but it's very intense. It's it's It puts you through a three-day detox and is probably one of the more dangerous processes to go through, you really have to be medically supervised. But once you get through that, then you pretty much are healed from your addiction, whatever that might be. But it's really good for opioid. And I know that MAPS is planning to do re more research on that in the future. LSD is also on the list for MAPS. 
We're right now focused on getting this public benefit corporation up, but we're now beginning to raise money for these other trials. Marijuana, we've got a, that's, we're doing some great research with that, with a state in the central part of the country who's funding a study to use on and treating PTSD symptoms. It's not to cure where MDMA actually does help to cure PTSD, but the research on, on marijuana to help soothe some of the symptoms of different contexts. And going back to Santa Daime in Brazil, the, uh, marijuana is considered uh, Santa Maria, the Holy Mother. And so it's seen as a medicine, it's prayed. They do the kind of Catholic Hail Mary type of prayer before you smoke it. And I actually have had very profound experiences with that intention. I had some really great downloads. I got a lot of good insights when you treat it with respect. I don't like to call it weed or I did call it pot earlier, <laughs> but I don't like to call it that because it, it's derogatory. And of course, marijuana, unfortunately, was used to demonize the Latin America Mexicans and and then acid, LSD, of course, acid, because they want you to think it's going to burn up your brain. Um, but marijuana is, and I like I like to call it cannabis, but unfortunately, cannabis means hemp too. So I'm not sure what the appropriate term is. I need to find that out. But that's a very good medicine too. And uh, and so I think that all of these things with intention, as honoring it as a plant and as a medicine, has a whole different difference if you're looking at it recreationally it's a, again set and setting intention if you treat it with respect you receive that i believe yeah there's some great work going on that you've described so just one last question about maps and then we'll move on and get to the end i think we're getting to the end of our questions and we want to be respectful of your time but so drug development cameron is done in, in three stages that in clinically phase one two and three so obviously phase three studies are the closest to to approval. Can you give an update on, on any of the exciting phase three studies? And you might have already touched on these, any of the phase three clinical research studies at MAPS and how our listeners can support can support this work as this is the closest to to getting them into the clinic. Sure. I, we're hoping to the the second phase three. MDMA study will be shared here. We can't share a lot yet because it hasn't been published. So we have to respect the tradition of publishing these kinds of results. But the the it's been an incredibly successful and and now we will be applying for FDA approval the third quarter of this year. We expect because we were fast tracked as a, as a breakthrough treatment. So we expect FDA has to approve within 90 days. So we expect to approve the approval by the second quarter of 23. Then it has to be rescheduled because it's a schedule one drug. And then, and then all sorts of other, there's a lot of work that has to be done to bring this to really help treat people above ground. And so we expect it to be on the market by the end of next year, the fourth quarter of 24. And within a year, we need support to help fund this process, it's not cheap bringing a drug to market. It, right now, MAPS has raised 145 in philanthropy to date over the 37 years of Rick's vision for this. Another 43 million in regenerative financing and then another 20 million in a two-year bridge loan. So about 63 million in non-dilutive capital. And now we're probably gonna need another, probably up to 240 million before it, it we begin to see income back, but then it will bring amazing amount of income back to support more research, to make sure that we're treating BIPOC, training BIPOC therapists, patient access. And Rick is, he's such a great guy. It's like a lot of the pharma companies, they want to sue generics to be able to have longer profits before the generics come along. But Rick is like, when it's ready for generics, let's produce generics. Let's get it out keep it out there into the public domain. There's amazing that we have all these wonderful investigators that helped us to do all this research to this date, and they all have their ideas for how to do additional research for couples, for eating disorders. Rick is a humanitarian, lots of interest in prison recidivism, working with prisoners coming out to, to help them because everything, and then Rick is has this vision for, as I said, a net zero trauma 
by 2070, which means that all so much stuff is about trauma. When you think about the veterans that have been traumatized by war, they usually go in the military because they're leaving a small impoverished community where they've probably had a lot of childhood trauma. They go into the military, they get traumatized by boot camp, they get traumatized by their service. They come out of the military and they become policemen and corrections officers. So then they bring the trauma into the into the police or uh, prison work. And then the prisoners are oftentimes prisoners because they've had some issues of trauma in their childhood that has that created their... We're looking at all sorts of different kinds of uses of this, which is very exciting. And so we need support. We need philanthropy right now. We're asking for the philanthropy to help support this development of the public benefit corporation. And once it, it starts then producing, that will bring in back lots of money that can go to Ibogaine research, to LSD research, and to helping to really end the drug war, which has created a lot of the problems we have with Latin America because of our policies in Latin America around drugs and so forth. So we really feel that it's time to cognitive liberty. We all should have the ability to explore our consciousness and not penalize people for trauma. And I also do believe in, there's also research in epigenetics, meaning trauma that's been carried generationally. There's some work being done at Mount Sinai and the Bronx VA right now with that. And it's it, because it's like Holocaust survivors, I headed up fundraising for the Holocaust Museum. I believe my trauma was from my family's trauma, our ancestors and so forth. So it's also healing our ancestral lineages through this kind of work. It's a, I believe it's a huge spiritual undertaking and it's an exciting thing to be part of. Oh, this is just incredible work. It's transformative. It's going to change the pharmaceutical industry. It's going to obviously change lives. And just taking a look back, your upbringing in the Midwest, your connection to indigenous communities and nature and your work with plant medicine, all connect you to nature. Can you share a little bit about what's next for you as it relates to your field, work with maps and the agriculture industry? What's exciting you? First and foremost, helping maps right now raise these funds to, to really protect this public benefit corporation is truly a public benefit corp. And so that's job one, because it is about healing our consciousness. And to be able to make sure that's producing wonderful income that then can support other research and other communications that help educate people to be conscious about the use of these things too. It's not without risk, but it needs to be done with really people you can trust and that have tr good training and that sort of thing. So that's that's my primary focus. The second focus, I work with Dr. Ron Weiss, Ethos Farm Project, which is a, he's a wonderful regenerative organic farmer, botanist, amazing violinist. My mother was a violin teacher, so it's an extra benefit with a, an incredible musician. But it's really about healing as food as medicine, and we need to get back to food as medicine. The agriculture industry is... Uh, Iowa, which I grew up in, it is doesn't really grow food. It grows commodities. It's corn and soybeans that feed livestock, and that it's chemically laden. They're you don't see the pheasants and the bird like up here in the Catskills. Fortunately, we don't have industrial agriculture, so you can see insects. Where in Iowa, it's like you don't have insects on your windshield anymore because of all the chemicals. So we've got to get back in harmony and balance with nature. So agriculture and, of course, our overconsumption of proteins and also the inhumanity of treatment of animals. It's, I grew up on a farm. It was pretty traumatizing to see what my dad would do to animals. And I also had, we had a great, great calf on the farm called Herbie, who we rescued. One of our heifers jumped into Herbie Rasmussen's pasture. And this, this heifer was impregnated. And my brother helped to raise this little calf. And we called him Herbie because of the neighbor's pasture. And that cow had such personality. He was a humorous, he was mischievous. He was incredible and he was smart as could be. And um, I remember Herbie. And so I I do believe we need to be much more conscious of how we treat animals. And that also then, of course, help will help the Amazon if we can raise that consciousness. And then reforesting, regenerating, 
you mentioned a one but it's actually all one.eco is my the funding portal concept i have and that i've been it's been a 30-year vision actually since returning from brazil in 92 and it's now kind of time to come together to be able to drive traffic to fund philanthropy to support grassroots small farmers to regenerate forests in brazil because everything grows so fast a friend of mine in brazil i met reforested in a mountaintop in Rio between Copacabana and Botafogo neighborhoods. In 20 years, it was a mature rainforest. So the Amazon is being encroached and desired. We need to regenerate the Amazon, but the Brazilian Atlantic rainforest is 92% gone. It's the east coast of Brazil, and it's all just cattle pastures. So if that could be put into agroforestry, I would prefer it to organic cacao and organic acai and things like that. But if beef, we have to have beef, then it should be sustainably farmed. And so if we could reforest and incentivize the landowners and farmers to do that, in 20 years, that could be a, a full, they bring back water, brings back animals. And if we could help Brazil, because I see it, Bucky Fuller talked about the trim tab, the quick turn on the ship. I think reforesting Brazil will be the trim tab to help our planet kind of come back into climate balance. And so that's one of my big things, but right now it's maps. And then that's my next step. Once I help maps in the next couple of years, raise the money they need. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you so much. So just one last thought in your work with plant medicine and in your own journey and coming out of the closet of all sorts of closets can you say anything about the ego and the dissolution of the mm -hmm. ego yeah yeah it's and I, I pray for that every day it's like i worry about that that the ego gets it's gotten in my way over the years and but it's really it's we're all one and that's uh, I, the all one came to me after a friend committed suicide and I was laying in bed. I felt so alone. It was after, after the earth summit, I tried to start a company called earth commerce communications. And I had three partners coming into my life to teach me about greed. One was time, one was money and one wanted to be president. And I put every, that was my first retirement went into that. And I learned a friend committed suicide and I, I got off the phone and I called the guy who wanted to be president and said, take it, I'm done. And I'm literally broke at this point. And I was house sitting for someone and there were two cats in the room. And one of the cats came up and laid in my stomach and started kneading my heart chakra. And I bawled, I let go. I was numb before that. And I was grieving my friend who was a, sweet, a beautiful human being. And I was laying there in bed going, I feel so alone, but yet I feel so connected. And I realized if, and I just given up a brand and so forth. I realized if you can add an L to alone, it's all one. Oh, wow. This is cool. All one community. We're all together. And then I realized all is a circle and one. What is digital communications, but a broadcast of zeros and ones and feminine, masculine, we, me, all sorts of different. So I was like, that kind of came to me. And so we are all one and we all share the water. We all share the planet. And that's all these boundaries of nations and religions and so forth are artificial. And that's where the indigenous. And one last thing, when I work for Greenpeace, their flagship is the Rainbow Warrior. And so a woman who handled indigenous relations for Greenpeace gave me a little book about the strange and prophetic dreams of the Indians. And there are literally prophecies all over the planet, very similar from different religions, different indigenous that eventually man begins to destroy the planet through greed and exploitation and rainbow warriors return to help save the planet. And they come from the East. They help bring back the, bring back the Indian way of medicine and the harmony with nature. And so that's, I see all the things maps doing. I see all this psychedelic Renaissance is part of that, that, that prophecy that the Indian way of medicine coming back and that we have to get back in connection and harmony with our nature. So it's a, uh, it's a pretty exciting time to be alive. It's a little scary, but if you realize and look at the indigenous, which are hopeful versus kind of Judeo-Christian gloom and doom, it's the indigenous painted the picture that this is the time. So it's time for us to all to come together. We're all one. They say it's time for us to wake up from the dream of consumption. The indigenous community says that. And I have to say your journey has just been so courageous. 
on the forefront of so many things. And I want to just as our final question, I just want to ask you, what would you say to someone who remains in the closet regarding either their their own sexual preference, the experimenting with substances or any other secrets that they may hold? What would you say to them? The truth shall set you free. I don't know where who said that. I should know that. But the truth shall set you free. It, it's freeing, if nothing else, just for yourself. Person you tell it to may not receive it well, but it, there's a freedom that comes with that, a freedom of consciousness, a freedom, and opening up to meeting other people that are in similar consciousness. And I think right now, you know, obviously there's a backlash, unfortunately, for the poor transgender community in particular which I think is a very spiritual journey. And I joke with friends that they die and go to the pearly gates. You supposedly meet St. Peter. Well, don't be surprised if he's in drag or, or has high heels on. Because <laughs> I think the universe is binary and it's non-binary. It's, it's this male, female, all this binary stuff is just not, it's, it, that's a myth. And, it, and psychedelic-wise right now, this is an amazing time for healing. And and we all have friends around us that are suffering from all sorts of different malaise and long COVID, et cetera. And these medicines are here to help. And so by coming out to help encourage other people to be more open, I thank Michael Pollan and How You Can Change Your Mind, the book that, that I believe the psychedelic renaissance would be before Michael Pollan and after, just as AIDS was actually before Rock Hudson and after. And by coming out and sharing and and talking, and Michael Pollan's book allows it to be a polite dinner conversation now. But it's time now to really start coming out more and help encourage other people, particular leaders, that because there are a lot of very smart business people out there and scientists too that have benefited from these medicines that help them in their creativity and their discoveries. It will be great for more and more people to come out around the psychedelics so that people are are more comfortable and are not as afraid to explore their conscience. I just asked chat GPT and evidently it was the gospel according to John. Ah, there you go. There you go. There you go. (laughs) My fantasy is to have every head of state on this planet at least have one MDMA session with a trained technician. Cameron, thank you so much for your time today. It's incredible. To learn more about MAPS, please visit w.maps.org. And to learn all about All One, visit www.allone.echo. Thank you, Jody. Thank you, David. Thank you so much, Cameron. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. You bet. Have a wonderful evening. Can ayahuasca ceremonies make people less narcissistic? Narcissistic personality disorder is a mental health condition where a person thinks highly of themselves, believes they're more important than others, and seeks attention and admiration. I'm sure we all know people like this in our everyday lives. People with narcissistic personality disorder often lack empathy for others and have difficulty understanding or valuing other people's feelings and needs. The impact of using ayahuasca in ceremonial settings on narcissistic traits, like entitlement, was investigated in a group of 30... The impact of using ayahuasca in ceremonial settings on narcissistic traits like entitlement, was investigated in a group of 314 adults. Psychologists and researchers occasionally utilize surveys called inventories or scales to assess particular personality characteristics. In this research study, two specific scales, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory and the Narcissistic Personality Disorder Scale, or NPD, were used for measurement. The study took measures at three time points, before the ceremony, right after the ceremony, and three months later. Both self-reported and informant-reported data, that's data from a subset of 110 participants, were collected. Informants are other people, not the people being studied, who were observing the study subjects. The study found changes in self-reported narcissism following the ayahuasca ceremony. 
For example, there were decreases in traits related to entitlement exploitativeness on the NPI scale, increases in NPI leadership authority, and decreases in a proxy measure of narcissistic personality disorder. Now, these are sort of fancy terms that scientists use to measure these traits in a, in a systematic and objective way. Importantly, the changes observed in this study were relatively small, and the outcomes were somewhat inconsistent across different measurement tools. Interestingly, there were no significant changes reported by the informants of the participants, only of the participants themselves. This research provides evidence that certain parts of narcissistic behavior might change in a positive way up to three months after an ayahuasca ceremony. This provides hints that ayahuasca could have some therapeutic benefits, but certainly more study is needed. It's important to emphasize that substantial changes in narcissistic traits were not observed in this study. The changes were somewhat uh, nuanced and not, not clearly and demonstrably increased. Further research is necessary to more comprehensively assess the potential of psychedelic-assisted therapy for dealing with narcissistic traits, primarily through studies that target people who show more narcissistic behavior and to use treatments that focusing on dealing with that behavior. Good morning. We are going to practice a meditation today that dissolves one's connection to the arising of our senses that softens, that lets go of moving into story um, when the arising of our senses, our five-fold senses arise, they arise from out of nowhere, these organs uh, that produce our senses. And so you have taste, touch, smell, sight, sound. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like for you to sit in a very comfortable position where your phone is turned off. And if you're sitting in a chair, please uh, just make sure you're not holding your neck or your back. Let them relax against the chair with your feet on the ground. And if you are sitting on the floor, just grab a pillow or something to elevate your hips so that your knees are on the floor and your hips are elevated. And this will give you a nice curve in your back. And so come into this beautiful meditation with your eyes closed. You're familiar with this terrain. It's something you've known since you were a child and a teenager and now as an adult. And come right inside and just observe for a few moments. You're inside. You can feel your breathing, your heart beating. Just be present there. Isn't it beautiful to be the observer of reality? These are internal objects of perception that you're experiencing. The arising of taste, smell, sound, touch, even the internal flickering of sight. Just feel as, <clears throat> excuse me, just feel as these internal perceptions arise. Now it is your job as a yogi, as a student of yoga, to experiment with the feeling of the arising out of nothing, out of nothing, sound come, taste, smell, sight, as they arise out of nothing, I want you to hold them as void. I want you to, the moment they arise, let go of any storytelling, any history or memory, any 
flicker of identity and observe them as void, as empty, as meaningless, as you without attachment to what they are. So let's try this. The arising from your organs of the five senses as they come in, let them go. The minute, the second, the spark of their arising, that is where the yogi plays, is at that moment of qualia, of the feeling of life arising in you, but let them be void. Don't engage. If you are thinking, come back to pure present awareness. Ah, the absolute exquisite wonder of just pure awareness of the senses as they rise, landing into a void of empty awareness. Feel as differentiated objects of perception, internal perception, dissolve, and you're just in one continuous experience of pure consciousness. No thoughts.
when you feel ready, I would like to ask you to begin to move out of this beautiful meditation. Just begin to wiggle your toes a little more and your fingers. Take a slightly deeper breath in. Just begin to come back. Feel your senses as familiar. Please remember that you are sensory processors. And if you can live in your day, not only in a sensory experience, but sensual experience of the arising of these organs of perception, these organs of taste, sight, sound, touch. And then let go of the story, let go of the history and the memory, and just feel that is Tantra. That is the feeling of our sensual self in this beautiful present moment. So thank you for meditating with us today. You can use this meditation anytime and I will see you soon. The music you have been listening to is actually my consciousness in motion. To create this hypnotic music, Marsha Britskaya of Nexvox and her team connected musical notes to the frequency of my brainwaves from gamma to delta. The team at Nexvox will be exploring how listening to your own brainwaves can provide health benefits from reducing your blood pressure to calming anxiety. Visit our show notes to learn more about NextFox. Exploring Reality Maybe is written, produced, fact-checked, and edited by Jody R. Weiss and David Schwartz. Research support is provided by Semicolon Connects. Music produced by NextFox. Visit our website at exploringrealitymaybe.org to find show notes, transcripts, bios, and to learn more. If you like the show, please visit our website to donate.